previously on the Who's Who podcast. Next is my single favorite page of this entire book. Um, I can see that. Yeah. In that it, it for 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 multitude of reasons. First of all, the the it's a it's a page with two characters, each getting a half page. Captain Compass, drawn by Gray Morrow, and Captain Fear, drawn by Walt Simonson. And not only do I mean those are like two of the best comic book artists that ever lived together on the same page, Gray Morrow and Captain <laughs> Walt Simonson. Top of it, and, and so on top of that, it's this is to me represents what Husu was supposed to be doing, which was sort of examining all the corners of the DCU. I mean, obviously, you're going to have a preponderance of superheroes because that's what major, yeah, that's what DC Marvel did. But DC published a lot of non-superhero stuff, and this is them taking the time to talk about characters that were sort of out of, really out of the, the, the mainstream at this point. And just the fact that because of the alphabet, you can put them both on the same page together. You have a, you know, a sort of nautical adventure character, and then you have a pirate character uh, together. Um, I, I really loved both of I just This page, I just love it. If I ever like if there was a list of who's who pages I could have with original art, you know this wouldn't this would not be number one because there's like Aquaman and some other ones. But I really would want to own this one because I just think they're uh, it's great. It's it, it's you know it, two unusual artists tackling. I, I almost feel like these guys asked to do these characters. Mm. It seems like Walt Simonson's kind of a big name to tackle such a small character. He almost feels like yeah, did he ask to do this? It, it has that yeah. feel to it a little bit. And uh, I love the distinct because you said nautical. I mean they're both nautical, really. They're both nautical, but, yeah. But there's a distinct difference in that Captain Com- uh, Compass is very realistic. Uh, it's very, you know, uh, military. You know, you get a real military sense for it because you've got your, you know, your scuba diver guy and you got him in his, his obviously Navy uniform. And then you got Captain Fear, we're also nautical, but it's, you know, the buccaneer look. Yeah. And it's in that Simonson, everything's bigger than life. Yeah. You know, he's got a yeah. jacket, which really, quite honestly, no one could wear in real life. <laughs> no, but it just looks so freaking cool. Yeah. And uh, those boots are, you know, very Simonson and just. And I think someone else wrote in about another character. Like, I don't. I've never read any Captain Fear comics, but I got to think that this one single panel of Captain Fear is probably cooler than reading every single appearance of him ever. And he probably gets more cool factor out of this drawing than he probably deserves. Probably. But. I actually liked the Captain Fear strip. It didn't run very long. Oh, okay. Was, I see. I've was, never read yeah, it. Yeah, it was cool. It wasn't drawn by Simonson. It was a little bit before he got into comics, um, which makes me again makes me think that he probably asked to do this. He probably um, read it growing up. I, well, yeah. Maybe. I mean, it was like a year before he got into comics, I would say. This was Captain Fear first appeared in like 72 or 73, and Simonson, I think, he got into comics in like 75. But um, but, but it's, oh. it's it's cool. It's a really cool – it was a cool feature, and I would love to see it brought back, especially – I when, didn't realize it was that recent. Okay. Yep, I yep. just – you know, now that I see Adventure Comics 425, yeah, he was pretty uh, recent in, in the scope of things. Yep. Of Who's That, our spin-off show to the Who's Who podcast, which focuses on a character robber I first discovered via their Who's Who listing. We'll look at their history in the DCU and whether their appearance in Who's Who did their job and if there's more to explore. Well, Rob, this was your baby. This was your idea. It's a fantastic idea. The first episode was awesome. You had a great guest of Ange. Uh, thanks for inviting me to be on the second episode. Yeah, welcome to another show of mine that you've wormed your way into. I'm very proud of you. <laughs> That's kind of how most of those things happen, isn't it? <laughs> that's exactly. Believe me, everybody. If Shag's ever been on any of my shows, that's because he basically invites himself on, and that's what's happened here. Little known fact, JLI podcast was actually Rob's, that's and right. I just took it over, and uh, I haven't let him be on it yet. <laughs> that's right. Well, the first episode was fantastic. That was an awesome review of The Crime Doctor. Folks, if you haven't heard it, go back on the Who's Who podcast feed. It's fa- absolutely fantastic. Uh, I, I really I learned a lot, a ton of stuff I didn't know. And uh, Ange was absolutely the perfect guest for that. Yes, all credit to Dr. Ange for that one. 
Absolutely. Well, before we get too much further, uh, as we dive into our entry for today, which I'm sure you've seen in the uh, subject line and all that already, we should take a second to thank our sponsors. This episode of Who's That is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. What you got, buddy? Well, uh, some of the stories we're going to be talking about in this episode uh, are written by one of my favorite comic book writers, David Michelini. Uh, from Aquaman to Star Wars, he's written some of my favorite comics of all time. So I went with something that he wrote, and this is uh, Ant-Man trade paperback Scott Lang, which collects a bunch of the Ant-Man stories starring this particular iteration of Ant-Man. It collects Marvel premiere numbers 47, 48, Iron Man 131 through 133 and 151, Avengers 195 to 196, 223, Marvel team-up 103, Marvel 21187, and Avengers 181 and Iron Man 125. And the reason I picked this one is specifically, again, it's because it was written partly by David Michelini, but uh, it, it features, as I mentioned, Marvel premiere number 47, which is one of my like favorite single issue comics of all time. I bought it off the stands, and I love it. I still have that same copy. Uh, the cover artist is Bob Layton. Normal. Uh, the uh, page count is 432 pages. That's a lot of Ant Man. Mm. Uh, <laughs> normal price is 24.99. In stock trade price 14 dollars and 49 cents. You save 42 percent off. And of course, uh, pretty much everybody's listening to this saw Ant Man and the Wasp this summer. So uh, pick up this book, Ant Man, Scott Lang. The size of the book is inversely proportional to the size of the character. That's right. Now, I, I didn't pick this, but my my absolute favorite run of Star Wars ever is the David Michelini and Walt Simonson run. Uh, it is gorgeous. I've, I've sung its praises many times on, on our various shows, so I'm not going to do it today. Instead, I picked something else. Some of the earliest comic books I remember owning, I picked Walt Simonson's Battlestar Galactica Art Edition hardcover. Now, these are these di- you know huge things from Dynamic uh, or Dynamite Entertainment, where uh, they they go and they get the original art, they scan it at high resolution, they print it in color so you can see the blue lines and everything. You can actually see basically the art. It's like looking at the art page in real life uh, of the way he drew these old Battlestar Galactica comics from Marvel Comics back in 1979 and 1981. Those are some of the earliest comics I really remember reading and owning and just living inside of. And first time I was ever exposed to Simonson, I'm sure. So you should check this out. So it's a hundred four pages full color again it's enormous um normally retails for okay it's, it's expensive normally retails for 150 but you can get it for 30 percent off so it's only 105 dollars which still sounds like a lot but guys this stuff is gorgeous if you've never seen these like artist edition books you don't know what they're missing they're absolutely beautiful so for that uh for these and all your other collected editions please visit instocktrades.com so rob you want to tell the people at home what we're going to be talking about today Yes, uh, we're going to talk about the DC Comics character, Captain Fear, the pirate. And uh, before we even get started, I will promise everyone that I will never talk like a pirate during this episode. That's the promise I make to you, the listener. Uh, I love how you team me up like that, Rob. That's just, that's the stuff. Really walked into that one. Uh, Yeah, no. Took me by the hand. Now, for those of you at home who heard the intro clip and went, oh, they're not talking about Captain Compass. Sorry, guys, we didn't mean to let you all down. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah, all you Captain Compass fans out there. No, this is Captain Fear. Uh, this was a character that I think, Chag, you had never heard of before Who's Who, because I certainly hadn't. No, absolutely. I'd never heard of him before Who's Who. I had seen his – before we did the show, of course, I had seen his entry in Who's Who and thought, damn, this Captain Morgan guy looks awesome. You know, it's kind of what I thought. And that was where it ended. You know, but then when we did the show, we did the entry, and I fell in love with it. I was like, this sounds so freaking cool. It's one of these characters I always wanted to check out. Didn't get around to until this week. Right. He only got a half-page entry. It's drawn by Walt Simonson. And, you know, again, I didn't – back when Who's Who was out, I had no idea about this character. I was sort of curious as to why he was being drawn by Walt Simonson. We'll, we'll learn all about that momentarily. But uh, – if you look at the entry, you'll, you think, oh, he must be one of these ancient characters. And no, right. he actually – he didn't first appear until Adventure Comics number 425. And in that clip that we just played, you always assume that that's like a way older comic than it was. But no, that's like 1972. Right. So this was a character that was introduced relatively recently. He'd only been around, I don't know, 12 or 13 years by the time they got to the Who's Who listing. And he's only racked up a couple of appearances before the Who's Who listing. So this was really one of those classic 
moments of Husu where they were just giving some space to a character that most people weren't worrying about, probably was never going to return, uh, has since made more more appearances in the DCU post-Huzu than he ever did pre-Huzu. That's <laughs> true. Um, but I, this, this, this listing made me go back and read some Captain Fear comics, and boy, howdy, I really love them. I really, so this is why we wanted to do this episode, because I really dig this character. I mean, it, this is a serious. Uh, the best phrase I can come up with is "high adventure." You know, like that's that's a that's a phrase that means something, and that's what these comics are: super high adventure, full of swordplay and beautiful women, and you know, robbing treasure and murder and pirates and l- gorgeous, lush illustrations. I mean, Alex Nino and Walt Simonson are the primary artists on this thing, and 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 I'm going to say something, but you know, keep in mind, I'm not a very bright person, so this is not as meant as an insult to any other anyone else in the comic book world. It's more of a compliment to these guys. While they are cartoonists, you know, by definition for what they're drawing, I think of these guys more as like illustrators, really. You know, like up in there with like Alex Raymond and Al Williamson. I mean, they're just designing these lush, gorgeous landscapes that you just want to go live in. That, that's that's how I feel about this kind of artwork. Am, am I completely out of line in saying that? No, these are beautiful strips. Uh, I Alex Nino, he's like um, Frank Robbins. He's one of those guys that when I was younger, I didn't like. I was just like, Ugh, really? what is this? Yeah, I didn't like Alex Nino. And then as I've gotten older, I've really come to appreciate it. And this is some of his, I really think this is some of his finest work. I mean, I'm familiar with a lot of his stuff that he did uh, for Warren. He did a lot of that stuff. And he did a lot of the DC horror and things like that. He was not typically a superhero artist. He even drew an issue of Omega Men. I know it's one of your favorites. Uh, but, I mean, this is, a, again, for a character that basically only had two runs before he got a Who's Who listing, to be drawn by Alex Nino and then Walt Simonson. Like, that's pretty good. And to be more specific for you Nino fans, because I did the research, and since I did the research, I'm not going to go without saying it. Uh, for DC, he was doing stuff like House of Secrets, House of Mystery, Weird Mystery Tales, Weird War Tales, Rima the Jungle Girl. There you go, Rob. Um, so just beautiful. I mean, this guy, I, I don't know that I'd ever seen his art before. And I'm serious, Rob. It has knocked my socks off. I mean, just blew me away. I, those Nino pages are freaking stunning. I absolutely love them. Now, I have a question, and I don't know that we know the answer to this, because basically the, the original strip was written by, and I don't hope I'm not stealing your thunder here, was written by Robert Kaniger uh, and eventually taken over by Steve Skeets, and Alex Nino did all of those. The way it's often listed, though, is it says by Alex Nino and then Steve Skeets and things like that. I wonder if he was the driving force behind this rather than Kaniger and Skeets. You know, I have no idea. Um, maybe uh, Alex Nino, you know, I mean, maybe since he was the consistent creative person throughout both sets, you know, the, the change writers, yeah. they felt they gave him, you know, extra credit. Or it may have just been that, you know, he had enough kind of like uh, pull to kind of get, I don't know, top billing or something. I mean, this, <laughs> this is amazing stuff. The way we're going to break down uh, this episode is I'm going to tackle the recaps for these adventure comic stories and then Chag's going to take over and talk about where Captain Fear moved over into the back of the Unknown Soldier for a brief time. And that's that's pretty much only the stories we're going to cover. We're going to talk about some of his later appearances post-Tusu, but we're going to focus on the ones that got him into the who's who in the first place. Absolutely. Well, why don't we jump in those recaps? All right. Uh, like I said, the, the initial run of Captain Fear was in Adventure Comics 425 through 427, then it came back for 429, and then 432 and 433. And just to give a little bit of context, they were trying lots of different things for Adventure Comics. Uh, Supergirl had just finished a long run. Before that, the Legion had finished an even longer run. And then they were kind of casting about in different directions. And so this this run of Adventure Comics truly is Adventure Comics, where it's there's like a jungle action strip, and the cover features a guy on a wing, a guy going after a winged horse. Like it's not superhero stuff. It's really almost like pulp adventures. And so you can see that Captain Fear would kind of fit right in in these sorts of stories. They were really kind of trying something very different. If I can comment, I, I'm actually holding three of the issues in my hand that I own from my own collection. Uh, I didn't even realize I owned them until he started doing this. One of which was a gift, by the way, from Professor Allen. Thank you so much. But like one of them here, number 426, his second appearance, it, it, this, the cover is Vigilante, you know, the motorcycle riding uh, cowboy Vigilante, and then a strip called Adventurer's Club. Captain Fear doesn't even get mentioned on the cover. Right. And then you get into the other, then Spectre really takes over the, the main thrust of it towards the 432 range and then by 433 it's now called weird adventure weird comics. adventure yeah yeah <laughs> so but i mean just seeing these you know holding them in my hand they're just oh, again I, I i i gotta shut up because i just keep raving about how beautiful they are all right why don't you do your recap 
DC loves slapping weird on top of things once uh, <laughs> Comics Code allowed them to do that. So, okay, anyway. So, Adventure Comics number 425. The story is simply called Captain Fear by Robert Kaniger, as Shag mentioned, and Alex Nino. In 1850, a band of Indians are fishing on a river in Haiti when a Spanish ship arrives and attacks them. The leader of the tribe, Quinto, is killed, leaving his son, Pharaoh, in charge. Pharaoh and the rest of his people are captured, but soon they turn the tables on their captors. After fighting the ship's captain to the death, Pharaoh rebrands himself Captain Fear, for he plans to strike that very thing in the hearts of, quote, every white devil he meets. Uh, Adventure 426 is God of Vengeance by Kanegar and Nino. Captain Fear rescues a blonde woman from being sacrificed in some sort of religious ritual by a cult at the Temple of Thu. The cult gives chase to Fear and the woman, but he fights them off. The girl tries to thank Fear, but he rebuffs her advances and tells her he only cares about her in so much as that he can return her to her rich father for a reward. Back on the ship, the girl pulls a gun and reveals her father isn't wealthy at all, but Fear will be forced to return her anyway. Adventure 427, his daughter's keeper, this time by Steve Skeets and Alex Nino. Captain Fear gets the gun away from the girl named Denise, and soon they are fired upon by another ship, this one led by the girl's father. Not wanting to risk harming her, he commands his men to not fire upon Fear's ship any longer, but rather ram them and then board. Fear's men are overcome, and he is captured and chained in the below hold. The girl has a sympathy for fear. He did rescue her from the cult, after all, and frees him. He kills the captain in a duel, and Denise reveals to him that she is not his daughter at all, but his slave. She wants fear to be her second-in-command and attempts to seal the deal with a kiss. Fear rejects the offer and dives into the ocean, leaving Denise to vow vengeance for his rejection. Adventure 429, Pirate's Revenge, Skeets and Nino. Fear washes ashore on a nearby island, but Denise and her men are waiting for him. They capture Fear with plans to sell him into slavery. It doesn't take long before Fear leads a mutiny, and soon the ship gets caught in a fierce storm and crashes onto some rocks. Fear survives and realizes he has made it back to his home island, only to find, only to find it having been taken over by those white devils. Adventure 432, Night of the Slaves by Skeets and Nino. Captain Fear is put on auction block and bought by a wealthy plantation owner named Senora Hernandez. She takes a shine to Fear and asks him to be her bodyguard, an offer he rejects. She slaps him and accuses him of attacking her, leading to a duel between Fear and Captain Gomez, the man who wants to marry Senora Hernandez for her money. Fear kills Gomez and escapes, but soon falls into a pit in the jungle set by a tribe of Africans. Adventure 432, Revolt and Revenge by Skeets and Nino. The Africans mean no harm to Fear and help him escape. They lead him through a valley where several members of his tribe are still alive. The Africans were once slaves on the plantation and are teaming up with Fear's tribe for revenge. But Fear knows that even if they kill everyone there, more white devils will arrive, so he contrives an even bigger plan. After taking control of the plantation, Fear dresses as Senor Hernandez's late husband. When another ship arrives, Fear uses the disguise to get close enough to take control of the vessel. He knocks the captain into the water, but not leaving him alone, they also send Senor Hernandez back to land in a rowboat. Now that Fear and his men have a ship, they take off for adventure. And that that is it for Captain Fear. These were these are the only stories until uh, almost like six six or seven years later. I loved this thing. Uh, this yeah. was so much fun. Such it it just it so atypical of what you would expect in sort of a DC comic at this time. And Alex Nino's work is just unbelievably beautiful. Number 432 particularly has like this weird little designy fronts piece thing. Oh, that yeah. Drew like that a totem is, kind of thing. Yeah, like a, yeah exactly. It, it, it looks like a totem pole. We should say, by the way, you should go out to our website, guys, fireandwaterpodcast.com. Go to uh, Who's Who, look up the Who's That issue number two, and there's an image gallery, and we've got all tons of images from these comics there, including that front of piece Rob's talking about in 432, which is just awesome. Yeah, this, these are – I absolutely thought these were fantastic stories. I had a couple of these when I was not a kid because I didn't buy them off the stands a little too young for that. But I had a couple of these when I was younger, and I this story just didn't register with me at all because, like I said, I didn't like Alex Nino's work. But now that I'm older and, quote-unquote, more mature, I see the beauty of it, and I love – how Skeet sort of seamlessly picks up for Kaniger, which is remarkable because they're two very different kinds of writers. But I, I just love the Captain Fear character. I just like this guy. And, uh, you know, he just is not putting up with any nonsense from these people. And he's a smart guy. He's like a tactician sort of. I mean, the whole thing of where they're like, well, we could just kill everybody here on the plantation. He's like, yeah, but, you know, then more of them are going to come and we can't deal with them. We can't keep killing everybody. And I love how the story ends with, 
him being truly like a Captain Fear and going off on adventures. I mean, Skeets really left it as if any writer could pick this up and, and run with it. And unfortunately, nobody did for the next you know, like eight years. Right. Right. And, and I'm going taking a little step further from what you said. I, he's a very distinct character, too. He's not just a generic pirate of the week. He, he's a, you know, he's this Caribbean Indian, or, or as they call him, uh, which from an island eventually becomes Haiti. And there's all these issues dealing with his background and slavery and taking over ships. I mean, there's some repeated themes and you just you really get a feeling like, you know, this guy. And I, I love that. And it's amazing what they can accomplish. I mean, some of these pages, guys, or some of these issues, they only had six or eight pages to work with. You know, and that even that just that first story where he gets kidnapped and he goes, he was a slave and then he gets, you know, he, he gets free just that first installment nowadays, that would be a trade paperback, an entire trade paperback. Oh, yeah. They, oh, they yeah. crammed it all in like eight pages. It was amazing. And, and going beyond just that front of piece, you know, Nino did, his artwork in general, the panel design is really impressive. And, and there's something interesting he did. And I don't know if you noticed this, Rob. In, in the very first installment, he didn't repeat this in later installments. But in the first one, he does these really interesting close-ups where it almost looks like he like took a tiny piece of art and blew it up because there's like a lack of detail, really huge, thick black lines. I mean, if you can flip through that first one, uh, first issue as, as, as we're, as I'm talking here, anyway, he'd blow it up. You'd be kind of a lack of detail, huge, really thick lines, large portions of black ink. And it wasn't every panel. It was just maybe, I don't know, one panel a page or something. And it was really an interesting art technique that I found fascinating. Um, he did it with like his dad and him and the fishing yeah, boat. Yeah, they look like woodcuts yeah. uh, when you get them real close up. Yeah, yeah, it's very yeah. interesting. There's one later where the guy like Iron will soon tame these hotheads, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. And it's just really an interesting technique, which he didn't he didn't repeat it. I went through and checked again. You talked about the front of piece. It goes on to, on on all the title cards. The Captain Fear logo is really intricate and detailed. It looks like these rocks. It's gorgeous. There's a lot of iconography. Um, for me, it really gets rolling with the second story, the one where they introduce Denise, the the blonde lady. I mean, you almost get a level of like Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of fun here because this is um well, oh gosh this never mind this is 72 <laughs> I was thinking of the later ones which are 81 um this is you know 10 years before Indiana Jones or Raiders of the Lost Ark but it almost feels like a Raiders of the Lost Ark level adventure running through the jungle fighting the natives all that I, I love that um Denise betrays him and it turns mm-hmm. out she's the captain's woman you know so uh wow just wow just love it love it love it yeah, this is really a fine, fine strip. Uh, you mentioned art-wise, like on in the second book, number 426, on page four, they have this uh, word balloon as, uh, with this caption where it says, With lethal speed, Captain Fear's bow hurls feathery messengers of death, which is just a great name, with steel-tipped <laughs> steel teeth at the oncoming assassins. And it's four panels, but it's one drawing stretched across four panels mm-hmm. as these arrows shoot across the panel borders. It's just... Nino was really, like, I don't know. I, I, I can only imagine how much line work disappeared due to the poor printing that comic books mm. routinely got. But, man, this stuff is great. And I love the, the weird word balloons. Like, all the word balloons are kind of, like, hard-edged. Yeah. And they even, they even some of them even have, like, little drop shadows on them yep. uh, over the page. It's just, again, it just doesn't look like anything else. And you... I won't say this could have appeared in a Warren magazine because there would have been nudity, but it's it's close to it. This just doesn't tonally doesn't feel like anything DC was really doing. I mean, I can't claim to be an expert having read you know every one of their weird titles in the seventies, but this just doesn't. It just seems so we- different than anything else DC was trying to do. And it's funny. Uh, I mean, the, the readers were not big fans of this new direction. And one of the other strips in these uh, comics, these early ones, is called the Adventurers Club, right. which is was drawn by Jim Aparo. So you know immediately what I thought of it. And, uh, <laughs> and later on, in one of the later issues, and there's the letters page, and there's a simple review. The Adventurers Club idea stinks from one fan. So uh, <laughs> fans were, were not uh, shy about expressing their lack of happiness with this new direction. And I think by the fact that Captain Fear didn't come back and he never got the lead, he never got mentioned on any of the covers, I think it tells you they probably didn't think this had you know a whole lot of legs to it, which is too bad because I think this is I, – I, this – I mean this, this wouldn't make a great trade – because it's just too short, like DC would never print. But boy, I'd love to see this all collected together. This is so nice. 
Well, we've talked about this a whole bunch with Who's Who before, where if, if DC, you know, the way they're also fleshing out this new DC Universe app, right, mm-hmm. where, with digital comics, if they, and they're going to have, they're going to have a, uh, like a Who's Who kind of area there, by the way. It's not really Who's Who, it's more like a Wikipedia, but they're going to have, uh, I don't know if you watched that whole 18-minute video, but they will have a, a Who's Who sort of section where they have characters, and it's all hyperlinked and stuff. This would be perfect. Because you're right, you're right. You can't print a trade paperback, but it's it's so easy to do a digital comic. You know, they That's could true. have this digital mm-hmm. stuff out there, and, and you and you you read about the entry, and maybe you pay I don't know ninety nine cents for eight pages. Okay, you know whatever, or, or or maybe it's part of the free package. I don't know, but it would be ideal to get this kind of stuff out there. Yeah, it's re- it's a really solid strip. It's a re- it's just an and then even becomes uh, just as solid in the in the very big change of direction in the next set of stories. But I mean, being Bob Kaniger just seemed to like. I mean, that guy created so many great characters, and like the fact that he created this too. It's like the guy was just a, an engine for giving up all the, giving DC all these concepts to run with. Yeah. Well, why don't we go ahead and get into the next iteration of it? All right. So we jump forward about seven years, I think it is, um, from '74 to '81, and uh, in the back of Unknown Soldier. From 1981, you get issues 254, 255, and 256, a three-issue run. And uh, they, they re – I don't want to say reinvent, but they bring back the Captain Fear character, and they make some changes to him. Uh, it's writer David Michelini, artist Walt Simonson, letter is John Workman, and colorist is Carl Gafford. Now, I'm going to just read it as just sort of one big recap here, but uh, we'll blow through this. So this – the story opens with this great splash page depicting three different scenes. The main image is of the reimagined Captain Fear, now sporting a white headband and his enormous Captain Morgan-style red jacket, uh, which, by the way, you saw in the Who's Who entry. The other two images serve as a prelude to the story, depicting a Japanese battle from the year 1600, and the other is the, an Austrian war from 1741. Both conflicts will play a role in this Captain Fear adventure. Now, we get into the story here. At sea, there's a battle taking place between a Spanish ship and a Dutch merchant ship. Then, surprisingly, the Spanish ship comes under under attack from a third ship. This one is named the Reaper's Edge, which is the swift and deadly warship of Captain Fear. The the Caribbean Indians' men make quick work of the Spanish. Then they move over to the Dutch ship as well. But when they get there, they find out everyone in the Dutch ship is already dead. But how? The only evidence are these strange bladed weapons the pirates don't recognize. But we, the readers, of course, know in 1981, these are the shuriken, you know, the ninja throwing stars that were so popular. Uh, only one cabin is left undisturbed. There, the pirates find this Chinese man who's, who has chosen suicide rather than being murdered. The dead man has in his possession a sheet of parchment written in a foreign language, which they can't read. So for whatever reason, this parchment seems important. Captain Fear takes it and only the parchment, leaving all the rest of the treasure on the ship, on the Dutch ship, to be guarded by a few of his hand-picked soldiers. Uh, After Captain Fear leaves the Dutch ship, all the pirates that were left behind to guard are all quickly dispatched by more throwing stars. Very ominous scenes. Then Captain Fear later infiltrates a Spanish town, waking the governor in the middle of the night, and then demands at sword point for the governor to translate the parchment. The governor translates the parchment for himself, but never reveals the details to Captain Fear. Turns out this parchment is a secret communique between a dissident faction in Japan and the King of England. And we're getting into political intrigue here, folks. The Japanese are offering to finance England's current war against Austria in exchange for England's help in overthrowing the Japanese ruling shoguns. Ooh, this is deep stuff. Now, this would have been huge news to the Austrians, and the Spanish governor plans to sell that information. Now, at this time, the Japanese ninja arrives, the one that killed everyone on the Dutch ship, and to, he wants, he's there to take the parchment and kill everyone with any knowledge of the document. Captain Fear and the ninja have this epic battle, which includes swordplay and leaping and throwing weapons and blowguns, and finally this enormous explosion, which they both escape from by leaping from opposing windows. The next day, Captain Fear arranges to meet the Spanish governor to sell the parchment to him. Of course, the governor plans to double-cross Captain Fear, but the Carib Island pirate surprisingly receives help from the Japanese ninja. The ninja insists that the captain deserves an honorable death rather than to be double-crossed. So the Captain Fear then blows up his own ship as a distraction, which also sets fire to the Spanish governor's ship. The good captain and his crew fight side-by-side with the ninja against the treacherous Spanish soldiers, and in the end, the governor sadly shoots and kills the ninja, while Captain Fear and his men manage to sink the Spanish ship and steal its cargo. Demonstrating his respect for the ninja, Captain Fear then wraps the parchment around an arrow and shoots it onto the burning ship right next to the ninja's body. The cap- and Captain Fear says the ninja has earned the scroll. Fear and his men then set out to sea. There you go. Now, uh, it's very it, – it, it's totally – 
different to me. This is more, it's still high adventure, but it's more of a straightforward pirate tale. Like, if you look at the way Captain Fear, I mentioned earlier, you could really tell the character of Captain Fear and his history of the, you know, being from Haiti and all this stuff. Well, this is, again, this is a big adventure. It could have been two different characters. It, this could have been any pirate, really. I, I don't know if you agree with that or not. I Yeah, well, I don't know if... Hmm. I don't know if I would say it could be any pirate, but it is very different. It's a very different Captain Fear than the one we saw in the adventure comics. There's no yeah. doubt. I mean, first of all, he just looks different. I mean, it's drawn by Walt Simon Jones, everybody looking huge. I mean, and amazing. I, yeah. I mean, Cap- <laughs> Captain, Captain Fear is drawn by Alex Zinio was kind of this little skinny dude. And the way Simonson draws him, he's this big bulking guy with these huge jacket and stuff. So it, it, they do seem character-wise very, very different. But I really enjoyed this. First of all, mm-hmm. again, it's Walt Simonson. Who the hell doesn't like Walt Simonson? Right. The lettering is by John Workman, which you know they are like some of the they are like the best team in comics. Those two. Uh, and real, then real I real quick before you strain any further, the lettering. You mentioned the cool word balloons in the first set. I didn't notice those till you mentioned it. I, I noticed the cool word balloons in the second set that Walt Simonson issues. There's some amazing word balloons in this one. The way they're shaped and the size and the yeah. the way that the, the – I don't know. Just the way – it's not just your standard bubbles. You know, it's really yep. got some life to it. Yeah, Workman, John Workman is one of the best letterers ever to do it, and he fit really well with Walt Simonson. I love – my favorite uh, piece of dialogue is actually a caption in page three of the first story where – Captain Fear jumping on. He says, now board. And it says, the Spanish seamen are superior fighters, but Captain Fear is, well, Captain Fear. He's <laughs> like, like, okay, he's just going to kick all their asses. So, yeah, it, it is a little more of what you typically expect from a pirate comic book, but I love it anyway. It just it yeah. moves at such a fun pace. you got a friggin' ninja worked into this thing. Right. I mean, it's just, it, it really is, as you said, it really is like high adventure. And I just... I loved everything about it. It's it's the rare thing where you have two com- very different approaches to the same character, and both of them, I think, work in their own unique ways. Yeah, there's no conflicts. And when I said yeah. they could be different characters, I, I didn't mean that as a criticism, really. It's, it, then there, there are no conflicts. Um, it's just it, they're just very different. You know, when I mentioned the Rose Lost Ark thing earlier, you know, to me, the first Captain Fear actually looks sort of like – remember in the beginning uh, of Raiders with Belloc and all that and the of natives? Course. he. Captain Fear looks a little bit like those natives in the first in the Alex Nino stories. I don't know if you agree or not. No, that's oh, the Jovitos, yes. Yeah, Jovito, thank you. He looks very much like a Jovito. And then here he just looks like Captain Morgan, you know, with a, with a different <laughs> hairstyle. So it's it it is very different looking. But again, it's Simonson. That jacket looks I mean, it never looks so cool. I, I'm surprised Captain Morgan hasn't hired uh, Simonson to draw their their characters, so, you know. Um Let's see, uh, the Japanese influences here with the ninja and all that. I mean, clearly you can see Simonson's love for this because um, you know, we'll see it later in Manhunter. You know, all those Japanese influences come in there. And I love the inclusion of the history, like the, the, you know, the Japanese um, shoguns and the Austrian war and how it affects the political intrigue. I thought that was fascinating. I really did. And I, I, I got to talk about this. My favorite panel in the whole thing is on the second issue. It's page six. It's like the uh, second – it's the last page of the, of the second issue. There's this giant explosion. Uh, in the room where they're fighting the governor, the ninja and Captain Fear. They're actually fighting each other, too. And it explodes, and they both jump out, one out each window. Captain Fear out the other, the ninja out the other window. And I just think that looks great. And I think that would be a good place for you to talk about the sound effects. Yes, well, <laughs> I mean, we all know uh, some of the, the the sound effects are some of the most amazing things in these Walt Simonson comics, even though the specific sound effects are written by the writer. And in page in the the third book, the third story on page four, uh, when the ship blows up, there is one of the great sound effects of all time. It reaches across the entire panel, and it is the word scratch-a-foom, which is just a, a combination of several different syllables all smooshed together to make one thing. And it's a, this shot of the ship blowing up, and clearly Simonson was very proud of it because he signs this panel. Oh, he did. Yeah, right. you look at the very bottom, you see you see that little dinosaur single single that he's got. So um, that's actually a perfect time to, to mention. Uh, in anticipation of this uh, episode, I reached out to the writer David Michelini. I've, I've had the uh, good fortune to interview David for the Aquaman Shrine, and so I reached out to him about writing these stories because I was so fascinated as like where this came about. So this is just a couple of things that I asked him about writing these Captain Fears, and I said. Uh, do you remember how the strip came about? The character, uh, Captain Fear, was dormant for almost a decade. Did DC approach you about bringing him back? And he says, no, DC wasn't looking to bring the captain back. 
but I was always drawn to less mainstream characters. I had read a lot more Sea Devils and Challengers of the Unknown than Superman or Batman as a kid, and Walt was a big history buff. He was the one who came up with all the Tokugawa Shogunate stuff. So we combined our interests with the character no one was using at the time, and that three-parter was born. So I said, was there any indication that this was a test to see if Captain Fear could come back long-term, or was it always planned as a three-issue story and that'd be it? David said, no, it was just something that Walt and I wanted to do, and DC was kind enough to indulge us with a three-issue backup. Uh, What was it like working with Walt Simonson on this? These three segments are enormously fun, very reminiscent of classic Hollywood pirate films. It really feels like both of you really sank your teeth into this. He says, working with Walt was slash is always a blast. How could you not get excited about putting words to those pictures? Fun and (laughs) And then finally, I said, as the writer, were you responsible for coming up with this fantastic sound effect, the aforementioned scratch-a-foom? And he (laughs) says, I was the source of bizarre sound effects. Walt was responsible for visually interesting ways to make them fit the picture. So (laughs) I I love that idea that, like, David Michelini and Walt Simonson just got together and were like, we want to bring back Captain Fear. And back then, DC was like, yeah, okay. Here, you, <laughs> you, you can have part of this uh, Unknown Soldier comic. I think that's just terrific. I, I makes, and it seems that much more charming to me that they just let these guys just do it because they wanted to do it. Well, you talked earlier about how DC's you know wider breadth of stuff goes beyond just superheroes, and then this was unusual for the time because I mean, you know, even especially by in, by seventy two, somewhat by eighty one, definitely it was very unusual for them to have non superhero stuff. And I, I guess I didn't really think about the fact that the Unknown Soldier was publishing at that time, yep. and now it's got me really interested in reading some of those because um one of my favorite you know remember Showcase presents those big um, phone book stuff that's black and white, oh, of course, yeah. Two of my favorites was the War That Time Forgot, which is the uh, the, the the basically it's army or military stories of, of soldiers fighting dinosaurs. Um, that's all it is. There's no superheroes in that thing. I love it. It's one of my favorite showcase presents. The other one is the Enemy Ace showcase. They're both just gorgeous to read. And Robert Kaniger wrote a lot of both of those, if I remember right. So um, I guess I'm. I think maybe I should be reading less superhero stuff and some of this weird stuff. I think it'd be like the unknown soldier, like even the covers alone. Like I look at those and I'm like, I want to read this story so much. If you go back and you look at the letters pages from those comics, cause I went and uh, did and, and I looked and see what, to see what the reaction was to mm-hmm. this, these strips. And actually the fans like them. They were like, wow, this Captain Fear stuff is great. And, Looking at the the Unknown Soldier letters pages, and probably you'd find the same thing if you looked at Sergeant Rock, it kind of reminds me of, and I don't mean to get too far afield from what we're talking about, but I can't help as my my brain goes. There are many, I read an interview many years ago with Larry Hama where he talked about writing G.I. Joe, and uh, he said that G.I. Joe was one of Marvel's best-selling books, mm-hmm. but it sold to a very different audience mm. than Spider-Man and Captain America. Like, it just sold to a complete, like, the, the Venn diagram is a very tiny sliver of the same people. And if you read the letters pages for the Unknown Soldier comics, you'll see it's a lot of veterans. It's a lot of, it's a lot of older people. It's people that clearly have a lot of knowledge of, like, military history. And they talk about, like, the artillery. And they talk about, oh, the gun used in this panel isn't the right thing. And so I get the sense that DC was still publishing war comics, but they were sort of appealing to not the same crowd that was, you know, buying Batman and the Outsiders or whatever. Right. So I could see that, like, why Captain, like, Captain Fear and the Unknown Soldier are not a, that's, that's a weird fit, you know? But you could see that it's almost like, well, but Captain Fear would might appeal more to an older audience than, again, somebody buying Batman or Superman. So they right. just sort of jumbled them in in the, in the back. So the, the DC War Comics were kind of on their last legs at this point. The Unknown Soldier only had about another... 30 issues to go. No, actually, not even 30. only had about another 12. I think the last issue of Unknown Soldier is 268. So the book was, you know, heading into its final run um, at this point. And at that point, DC would just basically be doing nothing but superheroes. But I liked it. Again, they were willing to experiment and, and try different things, even this late in, the, late in the game. Well, here we sit, you know, 30 years later. Gosh, no, wait, almost 40 years later from these stories, and now it's piqued my interest you know, to read yeah. these war comics and things like that. It's something different. Yeah. So uh, I, I, I mentioned earlier there's no contradiction. Actually, that's not true. There is one contradiction uh, from the original run of ah, yes. to the subsequent <laughs> one. Do you know where I'm going with this? Yes, the time period. Yes. The, the first story is 1850. 
right? The that that's the Alex Nino stuff. It takes place squarely in 1850. It says so right in there. The Michelini story says it takes place in 1748, a hundred years earlier, which actually makes more sense with the timing. Now I'll take it another step further. Uh, we're going to talk about the later stories, but one of them is called the Judas Coin, which was done by Walt Simonson. So I consider it to be a piece of this run here. Uh, he says it's the year 1720. So hmm. 1850 to 1748 to 1720 just keeps going back in time. Pretty soon Captain Fear is going to be in zero BC. But, <laughs> um, well, you know, with that, should we start talking about the later appearances now? Yeah, there's just a couple of things we want to hit that, you know, Captain Fear did not disappear after Who's Who. Like, he, he did go on. It took him a while. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's still getting used occasionally. Well, he got an immediate appearance, uh, which uh, right after Who's Who, which in the history of the DC Universe, number one. Now, admittedly, it's just a page. Uh, in fact, he's on the same page as the gay ghost or the great grim ghost, depending on your pre- preference of, of name. And Tomahawk, your favorite. Another one of my favorites, yeah. All three of those were on the same page. It's pretty cool. Then you got to jump forward ten years. Uh, then you get to John Ostringer and Tom Mandrake's The Spectre series. Uh, Captain Fear appeared in issues 40 through 42. I have not read those. I can't vouch for them. Uh, but I can vouch for the next one. Tail- then in 2000, I jump forward another 10 years to 2006, 2007. You get Tales of the Unexpected, a one through eight. This was one of those miniseries right after Infinite Crisis where they were doing um, – it was anthologies where you had a bunch of different stories. And so there were these little short stories in the back about this group called – eventually called Team 13, which is led by Dr. 13. And this has been collected as a trade paperback, which I just read in preparation for this episode. The trade paperback is called Dr. 13, Architect and Mortal- uh, I'm sorry, yeah, Mortality. And Dr. Ange, guest star of Who's That Number One, recommended this trade paperback to me ages ago. Ages ago. Had nothing to do with Captain Fear. He just said, you got to read it. It's great. Actually, I think uh, um, Infectious Last is what got it recommended to me. And <laughs> Rob, you got to read this thing. It is a total head trip. You think the story's going – I don't want to say too much because I don't want to spoil it, guys. But the story's going one way, and then all of a sudden you realize, oh, my gosh, I am reading a very meta – commentary on the world of comics. Right. They and even it, like read DC comics in the story, right? Uh, a little bit, a little bit, but there's, uh, maybe I'll tell you off air, but I mean, there's, there, there's a huge comic thing in here where you're like, once you realize what you're reading, you're like, Oh my gosh. So, uh, it's a lot of fun. It's a, it's a nice little trade. It's a little, it's a little short thing. It's not big. Um, and it makes for a fun read and it's, it's by Brian Azzarello and Cliff Chang, Cliff Chang. And let me tell you, Cliff Chang cannot draw an, an ugly picture. I mean, this thing is gorgeous every single panel and captain fear is one of these members of this team essentially what it is is they took it a cluster of characters which includes captain fear infectious last anthro dr 13 and his daughter tracy 13 uh, i vampire the haunted tank uh genius jones and um these i forgot what they're called primate patrol which are all these forgotten characters right completely forgotten characters and that's actually the point of the story is that these characters are completely forgotten in modern day comics and it's, they spin a wonderful story that I highly recommend to everyone. Captain Fear is fun in it. He's, his personality is a little different. He's more – he's a lot younger. I would say he's probably 22, 23 in this story. And he's a lot more about hitting on women and stuff like that and adventuring. But it's still fun the way they've interpreted him, and it's, it, it, it's, it's a hoot, absolutely. And there's a couple of pages from it out on our uh, gallery website as well. Um, let's see. Jumping forward, Captain Fear made an appearance in The Outsiders from 2010 in number 20, issue 26. Then he made an appearance in Superman Batman in 2010 in issue number 75. And then something a little more near and dear to our hearts, uh, he appeared in all-new Batman the Brave and the Bold, 2011, issue number 8. That's a, a comic book which was telling original stories set in the universe of Batman Brave and the Bold. You want to talk a little bit about this one? Well, that one's it's, – it's Batman and Aquaman <laughs> with Captain Fear. So this it's like all my favorite things in one place. I mean, I guess it, the, the only way it could have been better is if the story ended with them going to like a Bob Dylan concert and then watching MASH or something. But, <laughs> I mean, it's just I, – I love it. I absolutely loved it. And, and, again, this was like before I had really read any of the Captain Fear stories. So this was sort of like – I didn't even know him all that well. But this is – it's written by Sally, Sholly Fish. Mm-hmm. And, of course, who writes the Scooby-Doo team-up book. We all love that. And drawn by Rick Burchett, and it's 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 just so much fun. It's, it's it's the comic book was just pretty much the same version of the cartoon. Which I love the cartoon. Black Man is in it. The Fisherman's in it. And here, the Captain Fear is a ghost. Uh, it's it's so much fun. I absolutely love it. And I it, it, like Charlie Fish Man. He just I feel like he just has his who's who's bound, and he just pulls <laughs> things out. And he's like, what obscure character can I can I bring into it? So I I love it. 
he definitely gets our generation of comic reader. There's oh, no right. doubt about that. And, but I should have mentioned, by the way, in that Tales of the Unexpected, the Doctor 13 story, uh, Captain Fear is a ghost there too. So right. they're sort of continuing that theme is, you know, he had his high adventure back in the, well, 1800s, 1700s, you take your pick. Um, and then modern day, he's a ghost still, you know, knocking around. So that, I, I like that idea. Then he appears, and this is a, this is a great one, Rob. Again, another one I highly recommend to you. Then in 2012, uh, Captain Fear appeared in The Judas Coin, which was written by Walt Simonson and illustrated by Walt Simonson. And it, this was a hardcover uh, trade paperback, original graphic novel, I should say, when it was published. And the theme of it is, you know, um, Judas was given 30 pieces of silver uh, to betray Jesus. And he tried to return the coins. And in this story, one of the coins was stolen and has been passed down through history. And all it has come into the possession of all these various people, and it's cursed, and all these terrible things have happened to them. And the character, and they, and they spend, you know, a good eight, ten pages with each one of these characters. So you get a story about uh, the Golden Gladiator, and this is like a who's who fest, love fest right here, buddy. You get a um, you get a story with the Golden Gladiator from Rome. You get the Viking Prince. You get Captain Fear. You get Batlash. Freaking Batlash! Um, you get Two-Face. Of course Two-Face is going to end up with a coin, right? Uh, and then you go into the future for Manhunter 2070. So, and, and the wow. Cap yeah. The Captain Fear story is just, of course, it's Simonson in 2012. It's incredibly lushly done. He included the same kind of sound effects where, you know, it would just be this huge sound effect. I love that. He was consistent with that. And basically in the story, you know, Captain Fear's men have uh, mutinied and taken over the ship. And it all has to do with getting this treasure. And one of the treasure, one of the golden coin, or one of the coins in with the treasure is one of the pieces of silver. And in the end, the, the pirates that led the mutiny, things go wrong for them because, of course, they're in the possession of this cursed coin. And in the end, Captain Fear takes back his ship, of course. So um, great little story, though. Really. And this whole book is just beautiful and with all these unique characters it's such an interesting take it, it does not it's not a religiously heavy story it's just about this coin that's cursed going down from generation to generation i love this graphic novel from front to back so highly recommend it and then uh we've got one um well yeah, i'll mention this uh there was a reimagined cap'n fear <laughs> like c-a-p apostrophe n uh it was used as a batman villain in the 1990s uh, less said about him, the better. But then, <laughs> Rob, I think we have a uh, other media appearance. There is one kind of strange version of Captain Fear. Uh, last year, there was a direct-to-video movie called Lego Justice League Cosmic Clash, <laughs> which is, features all the Lego versions of the Justice League. And there is a Captain Fear in that. Now, in here, he's kind of a bad guy because he's running this pirate ship and he ends up enslaving Hal Jordan, who loses his memory, I think, and doesn't know that he's Green Lantern. So uh, he's voiced by an actor named Jason Spizak. He, again, he's kind of a bad guy, but he looks like Captain Fear from the Walt Simonson, David Michelini stories. So that's, you know, he, he looks more like that Captain Fear than the, the, the reimagined version that Shag just mentioned. So I'm having, I assume that that's, they're, they're, they're referencing the sort of classic version of the character, even though, I don't know, maybe he's not a, so much a bad guy, but he is, he's more like a pirate scoundrel type guy. So I'm going to assume that that's meant to be, you know, the actual Captain Fear. Unfortunately, uh, Captain Fear never made an appearance in the actual Batman and the Brave and the Bull cartoon. Uh, I would have loved that if they had found oh. a way to work him in. But so far as we know, this Cosmic Clash video is the only other medium appearance he's made so far. Well, Aquaman's getting a movie, so anything, anything's on the That's table now. true. Folks. That is true. Well, folks, again, go out to our website. Check out the gallery. We've got you know lots of images from Nino. We've got lots of images from Simonson. We've got some of the images from all the stuff we talked about in the future here. Really cool character. Obviously still has some sea legs. Uh, uh, uh. And um, hopefully someone can do something with him again because I, I really dig this character. I'm so glad. And now, the question is, Rob, did Who's Who did it do its job? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, yes. I, yes. I, I, I saw that. That was always, I think I even say it in the clip, but that is one of my favorite entries of Who's Who just because it's a character I never heard of, drawn by one of my favorite artists. It looked really cool. And it was, again, it was a slice of DC history that, you know, like they just didn't do much of it, which is not a superhero. So I think it absolutely did its job. It made me interested in this character it took me a while to, to find him but when i did now i'm so glad that i did because i i like love every one of these captain fear stories so good so good I, I can't remember which one of us suggested we do captain fear i know the next one we're talking about doing for who's that was your suggestion i can't I, i'm gonna pretend this one was my suggestion i'm probably wrong but i'll just take the credit for it anyway fair enough <laughs>
All right. Well, why don't we take a podcast promo break, and when we come back, folks, we're going to read your feedback from Who's That? Number one with Ange and the Grime Doctor. Adventures into the unknown. Tales from the crypt. Skeleton hand. The haunt of fear. The vault of horror. Adventures into terror. Strange tales. Uncanny tales. Journey into mystery. The house of secrets. The house of mystery. The phantom stranger. Doctor 13. Doorway to nightmare. The Witching Hour. Strange Suspense Stories. Worlds of Fear. Chamber of Chills. Terror Tales. The Beyond. Tomb of Terror. Weird War Tales. The Twilight Zone. Creepy. Dark Shadows. Vampirella. The Haunted Tank. The Heap. Eerie. Swamp Thing. Weird Mysteries Tomb of Dracula Tales of the Unexpected Werewolf by Night The Demon Man-Thing Monster of Frankenstein Brother Voodoo The Son of Satan Night Force The Living Mummy The Sandman Tomb of Darkness Evil Ernie Saga of the Swamp Thing. Flinch. Hellblazer. Thirty Days of Night. Preacher. The Walking Dead. What do these titles have in common? All of them. From Adventures into the Unknown, to Tales from the Crypt, to the House of Mystery, to the Tomb of Dracula may be found in the long box of darkness. I'm your host, Herman Lowe. Join me every Monday night for a journey into comic book horror as we delve into the secrets of the long box of darkness. So listen if you dare, puny mortals, to the long box of darkness, available on Stitcher, iTunes, and Podbean. And check out the blog at www.longboxofdarkness.com. Good night and pleasant screams. <laughs> Jeff and Merck present Unpacking the Power of Power Pack, where we journey through each issue of the most underrated Marvel series of the 80s while drinking beer, analyzing awesome and amazing adolescent adventures, and absorbing alcohol. We got kids with powers, we got villains with attitude. We got superhero guests, like all of them from the Marvel Universe. We have thematically appropriate beer reviews. We have good jokes and bad song parodies. One stop for all your Power Pack pod-pleasing procurements. And we got alliteration. Find Unpacking the Power of Power Pack wherever fine podcasts are played. And we're back with uh, listener feedback for the first episode, which we call Who's Who's, How's and Why's. And, of course, this first episode was about the crime doctor, and our special guest was Dr. Ange again. And I have to say, I want to say right at the top of the show, we all love Dr. Ange. She's a great podcast guest. And I will say, I don't think I ever would have done the crime doctor episode if Ange had said no. I was so in love with the idea of doing the crime doctor show with Ange. And I didn't want to put the pressure on him, but I think if he had said, no, I don't want to do that or something, I would have been like, okay. Then we probably never would have done it in the first place. So <laughs> if, you're, if you're enjoying this Who's That series, you really have to thank Ange because he was really the thing that, that started the enthusiasm for this series. So um, we got feedback on our website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com, of course. And we're going to start with Chuck Coletta, our pal Chuck Coletta, who is currently working on the Batman and Popular Culture Conference at Bowling Green State University. You can find that on Twitter. 
He says, great show, fellas. This character spotlight episode of Who's Who was a cool idea. I'm guessing Michael Fleischer probably learned about Crime Doctor when he's researching his great Batman encyclopedia from the 1970s. Mm. I poured over that one repeatedly when I was a kid. On another note, I was interested in hearing about the use of goddamn on 1970s TV. <laughs> Norman Lear was really pushing the boundaries of what language could be heard during the primetime in that era. When I teach my television as popular culture course, we discuss the evolution of what is taboo on television. Back in the 1950s, I Love Lucy could not use the word pregnant, and that was considered too risque. <gasps> One of the more controversial scenes of All in the Family involved Archie Bunker repeatedly saying, God damn, and CBS received a ton of complaints, and as usual, he provides a YouTube link. I'm really ashamed. A bunch of people pointed out that Fleischer probably learned of Crime Doctor from his research on Batman Encyclopedia, and I didn't put that together, and I should have, because that's obviously what it was. I mean, the, the duh. So Epic fail, Mr. Kelly. Epic that was an epic fail. fail. It really was. <laughs> uh, Chuck goes on to say, how about this one for a future film and water episode? The Crime Doctor from 1943, starring Warner Baxter. Apparently there was a 10-film series of a low-budget Crime Doctor movies from 1943 to 1949. A series ran from 19, a radio series ran from 1940 to 1947 and starred several actors in the lead role, including Ray Collins and Everett Sloan. Uh, the Batman version of the Crime Doctor first appeared in 1943, so maybe DC was trying to capitalize on the name. And he kind of explains the basic premise. Was originally, he was a criminal himself, but then Ben Ordway, love the last name, uh, got zapped on the head and lost his memory. With the help of a kind doctor, he began to build a new life and identity, studying medicine, eventually going into psychiatry. He decided to specialize in criminal psychiatry because of his intense interest in it and in the understanding of the criminal mind. And of, of course, it's Chuck Coletta, so there's YouTube clips as well. Um, that's amazing. Did you know these existed? I heard of a, yes, I've heard, okay, wait, I heard of the movie The Crime Doctor. I didn't know there was a film series <laughs> uh, I wonder if there was like some nerd back then who's like I've got crime doctor film fatigue at this point point. Uh, and I, I do I do have to mention just because I mention this every time he mentions that several different actors played the lead role including Ray Collins and Everett Sloan both actors Ray Collins and Everett Sloan appeared in Citizen Kane I always have to point out when they're actors in Citizen Kane they're both in that movie um, but yeah, that's a that, that's a fun idea for a film and water would be to look at the Crime Doctor series because all those movies, like those little B programmers, they're like sixty one minutes. All those movies are super short, so ah. you're just like watching basically like a TV episode. That would be fun. It's a good idea, Chuck. Now, if you could connect, um, you know, Kevin Bacon to Citizen Kane, <laughs> you'd have the ultimate you know six degrees game right there. Oh, I bet I bet I could do that relatively easily. I, I bet you could. So then. Um, Chuck had one last suggestion, and, and I love this one, man. So if I could pick the next character for the spotlight, it would be Balloon Buster. That entry always stuck with me, but I've never seen this guy elsewhere. And you know, I don't know if you remember, Rob. I freaked out when we got to the bees and did Balloon I do. Buster. I liked Balloon Buster a lot. I absolutely fell in love with that entry. Uh, the art was gorgeous. It, I, I remember it, the guy looked exactly like Owen Wilson. Um, and, and, you know, one of our friends has a, a, a website called I Am The Gun, all uh, that was like, I guess, his catchphrase. I, I tell you what, I would love to put Balloon Buster on the docket for a future episode. I'm putting my sure. vote in now, too. Sure, why not? All right. Uh, then we heard from our good friend, Martin Gray, from the Too Dangerous for a Girl blog. He goes, love this first episode. Ange was indeed the perfect guest. But what excuse do we have to get him back to discuss Hyathis? He's an alien. That's it. Oh, Martin, really? See, you're just feeding Angie's sick, sick fandom for Hyathis. Anyway, he goes, interestingly, in Bob Greenberger's update on Fleischer's Batman Encyclopedia, he says that it was the same version of Thorne post-crisis. I've just checked out Detective Comics number 579, and Batman and the Crime Doctor have certainly encountered one another previously, so maybe. I've just checked out Birds of Prey number 95. I'd forgotten that one, like Ange, and I'm glad I did. Gail makes him a flat-out sadistic killer, so no thank you. All right. Understandable. Um, <laughs> we got a comment from someone just called Grr. And he <laughs> says, uh, Don Newton also had a brief run on Infinity Inc. just before his death. In fact, he was supposed to become the re re regular artist on the title. But because of his death, the regular artist ended up being Todd McFarlane, which is probably what led him to, led him to becoming famous. I'm sure Rob is thrilled by that info. Oh. I think I found the crime doctor's appearance in Crisis Number 9. On page 4, panel 12, where the villains are staring at the spot where Brainiac has just vaporized Earth 2 Luthor, there's a character standing to Harlequin's left whose head is obscured, but he appears to be dressed like the crime doctor. Uh, yes, Gurr is right, because I, I later posted that panel on Twitter, and the official George Perez Twitter feed confirmed 
that is the crime doctor. Even though you basically could be anybody's head, that is that is was in fact meant to be him. That is insane. You know, I wonder. I'm sitting here looking at my crisis poster, the one, um, the big five foot poster that uh, Perez and Alex Ross did, and it's got 500 plus characters on it. I wonder <laughs> if the crime doctor is one of the background heads. I bet he is. <laughs> you know, why don't you guys just listen while I look? That could be fun, right? Oh, that's good podcasting. <laughs> All right. Instead, I'll read Paul Hicks's comment from the Waiting for Doom podcast and the DCOCD podcast. And, by the way, recent guest star on JLI podcast. He says, cool episode. Although Ange is lucky there's a character named the Crime Doctor. I expect a call when there's a character named Crime Business Analyst. You're the top of the that or Koala Puncher. Either one of those, Paul, you're at the top of the list. <laughs> I think it's more likely there's a villain called Koala Puncher, to be honest with you. Probably. Uh, Clinton Robinson from the Coffee and Comics uh, blog and podcast says, Now uh, now that some of the young supergirls are attending college, I expect Ange to eventually become his own version of the crime doctor to make ends meet. And then Ange chimed in, Gotta make ends meet. <laughs> By the way, okay, because I'm a nerd, I still have the key, the poster to this, uh, the key to the Christ's Infinite Nurse poster. And I just looked it up. Crime Doctor is on here. He's number 120, but the numbering order is in absolutely no order, so I'm never going to find this. Oh, no. But he's there. (laughs) I know that much. He's number 120, whatever that means. All right. Uh, Then we heard from Chris Franklin, of course, in the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He does shows such as the JLU cast, Superman Movie Minute, and more. And he says, I, too, first encountered the Crime Doctor in part two of the Fleischer-Newton story. Crime Doctor is a revived Golden Age concept debuted in between the Englehart-Rogers run, where obscure and forgotten baddies, uh, Hugo Strange and Deadshot, were revised to great effect. But before Jerry Conway, Newton, and Gene Colan resurrected uh, Dalla and the Monk, Dr. Death, and the Dirigible of Doom. After the That's a bunch of things I've never heard of. Anyway, uh, after the critical success of the Engelhart Rogers run, there was a real push to uh, to revive Batman's golden age through modern stories, which ultimately led to the introduction of the very Dick Grayson-like Jason Todd 1.0. Hmm, interesting. And speaking of Engelhart and Rogers, it's surprising that it took Batman the Animated Series to connect Dr. Thorne to the noted Gotham gang lord, Rupert Thorne. I bet if Roy Thomas had written a crime doctor story, he would have made that connection in the comics years before. You are probably right. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, Scott X uh, chimes in. He says, great first Who's Who spinoff episode. I once had an idea for a character spotlight podcast, but after listening to this, it is now officially crossed off my list. Love the concept of spotlighting characters that Rob and Jack first encountered in Who's Who and then covering some of the books that the character appeared in. Fantastic. I read the original Who's Who as it was coming out. I was introduced to tons of characters i never heard of before. I loved when those characters would then show up in a book I was reading and I knew who they were and their backstory and could show off that knowledge to my friends. I remember Shag mentioning a similar experience over on the Secret Origins podcast when discussing Rex the Wonder Dog. I love, yep. (laughs) As for this specific episode, I really enjoyed it. Always great to hear from Dr. Ange. True that, Scott. True that. I found 119. I still can't find 120. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to bug me all night. Uh, we got a comment from Earth 2. Uh, he says, great summation of the modern-day crime doctor. Wish you could have discussed more about the Golden Age version. Yeah, I, I I wasn't sure for the first episode how long we wanted to go, and I really wanted to focus on the two stories that Ange and I were more familiar with. But maybe as we go, I mean, we gave more time here to, you know, the, the two different sets of stories. And maybe as the show's going, I mean, these who's who shows, even the spinoffs tend to, you know, metastasize. So I'm, I'm sure eventually the who's who, the who's that shows will end up being four hours as well. There'll be a spinoff from that called who's why or something like that. But, uh, <laughs> right. I, to be honest, I, you know, I, I, I'm just going to disagree with you or two. I mean, I, I listened to who's that just yesterday and I thought you guys gave a fair amount of coverage to the golden age one. So well, that's just my two cents. Um, heard from Brian Linton. He goes, uh, this is a great idea for a spinoff series. I'm looking forward to learning a lot more about characters. I am nothing about as others have already mentioned. It was great to hear Dr. Ange on this episode. He brought some great medical insights to the discussion as well. The enth- as well as enthusiasm for this character. Well, thank you, Brian. Thank you, Brian. Max Travers says, love this idea and love this episode. Since Who's Who was how I discovered the FNW network, I am always glad to see it continue in some form or another. Besides, this was a major function of the series for me back when it came out. I learned so much about the characters I had never seen in the actual comics at that point. It made me feel so much more connected to the DCU, and it gave me reference material to use whatever, whenever an unfamiliar character did appear in a book I was reading. Looking forward to many more of these, and as always, Dr. Angel was a fantastic guest. I love this anecdote about Mercury poisoning. I love that. That's a great sentence. You never. That was really that. cool. I love his anecdote about mercury poisoning. You don't get that's. This is the bunch of words you don't usually see in that order. 
<laughs> well, it made for a great story, and it's just funny to think that people in his hospital are like, what is wrong with you? So, you know. Um. <laughs> I, I picture people coming down the hall, and, like, when they get to his office door, like, they do – they give it, like, a really wide berth. Like, they do this big circle around it just so they don't have to cross their front door because they don't know what kind of weirdness Ange is going to throw at them. Right. Well, you know, all these positive comments are probably going to give Dr. Ange a swelled head. Next thing he's going to ask us to cover Nemesis Kid or something sick like that. But anyway, you know a Legion thing's coming your way if you, if you let him on again. So do, Jeff, I think I'm, do I think I'm God? I am God. <laughs> Def, uh, what, do, what do you need with a starship? Uh, Jeff Tischer writes in, what a wonderful idea to expand the Who's Who series. Great job uh, on to Rob and Dr. Ange for this debut episode. In previous episodes of Who's Who, it's often become commented that the original Who's Who run really didn't give you a scope for how important the characters were. Crime Doctor's entry was just as big as the Joker's and Catwoman's. So when Paging the Crime Doctor appeared in Batman the Animated Series, I was super excited that a major but forgotten Batman villain was getting the spotlight. I can't wait for future episodes, especially the ones that dive into the wait for it, the Forever People and the Omega Men. Seriously though, are you going to take suggestions for characters or just pick them out at your whims? Well, I'm not, I may be speaking out of turn, but Jeff, I would say we're always open to suggestions, but ultimately it's going to be about what has sparked Rob and I's interest, I think. Well, based on what Jeff suggests, we're not taking his suggestions. <laughs> That's true. But uh, it's really what his, you know, like, obviously, you know, we've already talked about Balloon Buster. Uh, I don't want to say the names of the other ones we're talking about, but they're what, if you go back and re-listen to Who's Who, because that's a project for you there. Um, I know. I, I don't know why anyone would subject themselves to that. You can hear the passion in our voices when we get super excited about a character we know nothing about. That's what we're trying to hone in on. It's stuff that sparked Rob and I's excitement and uh, characters we want to learn more about. So certainly throw the suggestions at us, um, but just don't, you know, understand that we're going to have to pick it based on our own enthusiasm because you don't want us to do an episode on a character we don't care about. Right. And also what we can get access to. I mean, there might be characters that are in comics that are like we'd have to buy back issues of or not available on Comixology. So that that's part of it too. Uh, we got a comment from Mike Deans. Danes, I hope I'm saying that right. He says, I am getting caught up on the FNW feed and I would like to say I really enjoyed this concept. I would love to hear more episodes to highlight certain Who's Who entries. To me, that's what I love the best about Who's Who. I would turn the page and see a crazy concept like the Atomic Skull or the Calculator. And it would make me want to search out their first appearance issue if I could afford it. Always another great job with a great guest. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Mike. You know, that just made me think of one. And I'm, I'm not making any promises, folks, but you know what might be fun to look at uh, from a superhero perspective? Well, along the lines of Simonson, too, Calendar Man. Because uh, Simonson re-envisioned the Calendar Man looking really cool, you know, as I recall. Um, that might be fun to look at. I don't know. He had a very – him and Captain Fear would have like a costume off to who had the bigger costume. <laughs> That's right. All right, then we heard from my buddy Tim Price. He goes, I vote in favor of this concept. Uh, what worked is the crime doctor had a surprisingly complicated publishing history, giving more material to discuss than a one-and-done villain. Nice choice and a fine job on the episode. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Tim. Then, we heard from, then we heard from Boston Moss. He goes, I had no idea the crime doctor was from the 1940s, but any spotlight that features the work of Don Newton, I'm happy to catch up on. And it's a pity we lost him. I really liked his work in several places, but especially in Batman. He always did a fantastic job of setting the mood visually for Batman when he was in his dark night and before he became the constant uber bat that could kick anyone's butt. <laughs> Fair point. And as we said, we're going to post a bunch of images from these, uh, these issues of uh, starring Captain Fear on the website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com. Yep. All right, folks. Well, uh, next time we'll do a standard Who's Who episode. We'll dive into the next one of those from the Loose Leaf Edition. But until then, folks, who's, who's next? next? Relax, Flash. The Batmobile is prepared for virtually anything. Oh, really? Does it come with a bat pirate costume? Keep a sharp eye, you scurvy dogs. Fogs as thick as the devil's dandruff. Uh, uh, uh. Avast there, Swabby. This deck be looking like a Tortuga shanty. Remember what I told ye? Aye, aye, Captain Fear, sir.